Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Should we ride the inflation winners? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is James Devolis, Portfolio Manager at Horizon Kinetics. Hi, James. Welcome to the Daily Briefing. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So it's your first time with us, not on Real Vision, but on the Daily Briefing. So uh, for those who may not be familiar with, your, give us, with you, give us a little overview of your investment approach and framework. What do you focus on? Sure. So the short answer is hard assets, which basically real asset companies. So finite, inelastic demand, tangible, um, but also we overlay what we call a capital light business model. So high operating margin, operating leverage, minimal capital intensity, both in terms of working capital and debt. And we have kind of been focused on a lot of these themes, for a lack of better word, for decades at my firm. But more recently, we formalized it into a strategy about five or six years ago, and then most recently into a specific inflation beneficiaries ETF uh, just over two years ago in early 2021. So that's kind of how we approach this you know, changing world, changing economic landscape, and you know, much more volatile uh, inflation, interest rate, economic backdrop. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the timing couldn't be more perfect, or I guess we could say you you were prepared for this. And that totally explains why, for those who don't know, James uh, made the list of Wall Street Journal's best stock fund managers of, of 22. Um, because of all of it that you're talking about, not just inflation, but it sounds like, you know, the interest rate volatility, if you're looking for those companies that don't need that future capital. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about portfolio construction, but let's start uh, sort of a, a little bit on the macro, um, you know, inflation concerns certainly weighing on the markets this week, really, you know, from, from mid-February on when we started to get that hot data, but we saw stocks, market really kind of deteriorated today. Stocks sold off into the close. Uh, we had the VIX up 16%, treasury yields dropping. Investors there seem to be really sort of focusing on this threat of a recession uh, if the Fed has to be more aggressive. What do you, we've got a big jobs number tomorrow. So a lot of this yeah. is fear heading into jobs. What are you expecting from that payroll number and how are you thinking about the economy? Honestly, I have no idea what jobs it's seen. It seems like there's no rhyme or reason, but I think that things have been a lot more resilient. And I think that one of the biggest variables there is that there is a very long lag effect to higher interest rates less capital availability, and then how long that takes to trickle through the system. So I think a good example would be real estate lending, where you have a lot of people that were doing multifamily development that had SOFR-based floaters. And you know all of a sudden, they're floating at rates that are above the cap rate that they bought the property for. So they can weather that for a while. But I think after six months, 12 months, 18 months, that's where the real pain hits. And so I think that we're definitely seeing resilience in the economy, but I also think that part of that is the fact that it's taking a while for the higher interest rates to be digested through the economy. So I think we're gonna have very choppy data and ultimately our biggest concern or 
topic for the year, I think, is going to be profit margins, where in the beginning of an inflationary cycle, it's very easy for almost any firm to just pass on price. While inflation's up, I'm passing on price to you as the consumer. And in this specific type of inflationary cycle where consumers were flush, consumers could absorb it. The second derivative is now where you're seeing it actually hit their expense lines, both in cost of goods sold and then also in terms of SG&A. So you're already seeing some margin pressure on the S&P. And I think the, first quarter, the fourth quarter results we're seeing right now have been surprisingly strong. But I think that as we start seeing reports coming in for first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, you're going to see a lot more pressure on profit margins, which might be more indicative of kind of what's what's going forward than what's kind of in a rearview mirror basis. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point because, uh, you know, it's kind of waiting for that shoe to drop and everyone was waiting. And then we had this huge shift in thinking, oh, maybe this is the soft landing scenario. You know, that was uh, all the rage at the beginning of the year. It sounds like you fall more into the we just really haven't seen the effects yet. We've kind of bought time or we've, we're burning through that cushion, but we haven't really seen the pain yet. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the pain will really mean. I, I think that ultimately profit of, the profitability of corporations is going to come under pressure. Uh, it's really going to depend on the nature of how that trickles through the system to see how that impacts consumers how that impacts wages, how that impacts kind of the broader economy. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's it's way too early to be calling a soft landing type of scenario. That being said, I think that I was definitely in the camp where I thought a lot more damage would have happened already from both higher rates and the and the rapid rate of rate increases. And I think that what this group, myself included, missed is that there is a lag for when it really hits the broader economy. So we're not in the crash landing camp by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that it's going to be definitely a more tricky operating environment for most corporates going forward. Yeah, it, it's, so, it's so interesting you say that. All this week, we've been running a special series, a two-part series, but uh, looking at some of the big risk we face, that's the topic we've been dealing with this week. And as part of that, Brent Johnson sat down with Alec Gurevich, who was also talking about that lag and about what's coming uh, for corporates, uh, especially in connection to the labor market and wages. Let's have a listen to a clip from that. And I did, I did originally had probably have probably not a appropriate view of inflation. I think my mistake was how self-reinforcing inflation would be in a severely negative real rates environment. So it ended up being more pernicious and more protracted than I expected rather than original like bump shock. But, but in the process of it, my core view of eventual deflation got reinforced and it's keep being reinforced because as the real rates keep rising, as the Fed keeps hiking, as, uh, and as inflation is stabilizing in the environmental, really low unemployment rate, my view gets reinforced because what I realize that the first thing that's cracking is not actually employment. The first thing that is cracking is inflation. And as real wages will start creeping up, employment will crack because people will not be able to afford to pay those wages. And talking about singularities, there are more and more ways discovered, by the way, during COVID to have less employees. And yeah. You look at all those job openings, but they're not filling because people are not willing to pay what people want. And at some point, people will give up and start taking the jobs. And I think we're seeing it a little bit in 
but once they give up and start taking the jobs, they might actually find those jobs are not there for them suddenly. And then we really, we will really crack. And I feel like if you really think about a timeline of the lead, it's very hard to be patient this way in the markets, but the reality is, I think somebody tweeted very recently, we're just approaching the window, which when we might start feeling the effect of the first Fed hike. That full interview is available on our website. It is part of our two-week series, as I mentioned. This week's the risk. Next week, hang in there. We'll get to the opportunities. You can scan the QR code and join and find out how you can access it and join our community. Um, you know, it's uh, so, James, it's interesting because I think Alex has a very different view from you. He sees the pressure on corporates, uh, the, the wage increases. He doesn't think they're going to be able to afford it. but the response would be to lay them off. It kind of speaks to that labor versus capital argument, I think, a little bit. But where do you come down on this? Are you thinking about how corporations are going to deal with that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that that ultimately we're entering an era of higher structural inflation that's going to be volatile. But let's take a step back before we get into what, what we're looking at going forward. There have been three big variables that I would argue have contributed to disinflation over the better part of the last 30 years. And I'm careful to say disinflation. We had positive inflation, just very muted inflation to what it would otherwise have been. The first was globalization. So at its root, it basically optimizes efficiency for getting goods and labor to where it's plentiful, to where it's cheap. That has inherently resulted in lower costs of raw materials and lower costs of labor. The problem with that is that going forward, both by virtue of these OECD nations maturing in terms of GDP per capita, i.e. Um, standard of living, we're now competing with them for those same resources and labor. We're also starting to onshore. So you're seeing big calls for onshoring, both in terms of national security, but also the resilience of a business, which I think is going to be prioritized over the efficiency of a business. So those things are all going to be inherently inflationary, both in terms of labor and then also in terms of raw materials. The other variable is productivity. So we've had really tremendous productivity gains, and one of which I think for the Western developed world that was really remarkable was kind of the early 2000s. But if, if you look back from 1999 through that following decade, uh, through 2009, we had 320 basis points of productivity growth tailwinds. But what occurred during that decade? It was the advent, it was basically the globalization and full usage of the internet for business and economic purposes instead of just instant messenger and scrolling chat rooms. Mm. So all of those variables that were inherently disinflationary are ending or reversing. The other, I think, really important uh, factor to think about when you think about deflation versus inflation in the broader economy is that there's two types of inflation, and most people fail to understand this nuance. There's cyclical drivers of inflation, the things that really spiked at the beginning of the pandemic, or sorry, at the beginning of the recovery out of the pandemic, I should say, whether it was used cars, semiconductors, capital goods like washers and dryers and windows, supply chains normalized, demand normalized, pricing normalized, no surprise there. 
But then look at the structural drivers, it's things like energy, food, agriculture, industrial metals, um, even precious metals. These are industries where there's fairly inelastic demand, regardless of the economic backdrop. And we've done nothing to really um, address the root of the problem, which is insufficient supply. So the Fed right now trying to combat this type of inflation through destroying demand via interest rates, you're putting a Band-Aid on a patient mm -hmm. that needs surgery. The surgery is improving supply. So for all of those variables, we think obviously anything can happen short term. If the economy falls off a cliff, you know anything can happen short term. But longer term, if you're willing to look out 12, 18 months, obviously three, four, five, six, seven, 10 years, higher structural volatile embedded inflation, I think is going to be the new uh, modus operandi. And that requires a complete rethinking of how you invest compared to the last one, two and three decades. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, James, because that is such a theme that's come throughout the interviews that we've had this week as the first part of that series. A lot of conversation about the, what do you call it, regionalization, reshoring, the change of global supply and, and what that's going to mean. And this idea that, you know, what has worked before won't now has been a really, really consistent theme, including with my conversation uh, with Peter Zion. So in that, with that, it sounds like energy is front and center. When we're talking about that lack of supply, is it really centered around energy? I mean, energy, I think, is the most obvious uh, in terms of insufficient spending because it's kind of one of the most immediate needs. So people don't necessarily appreciate a shortage of copper because they don't understand that copper goes into basically everything that's electrified from their appliances to their consumer electronics to their automobiles to the, the very power grid that electrifies everything from their homes to their offices to their electric vehicles. So Going back to uh, energy, that's very immediate, very acute. And if you have an oil tank or you're paying wholesale gas prices, you see that directly in your utility bill every month. So it's easy to scapegoat ESG and government policies. And believe me, that there is a lot of that to blame in the predicament that we're in right now. But I like the quote, capital goes to where capital is treated well. Capital has been treated horribly in energy for the better part of the last decade, even 20 years. So we've seen a lot of run-ups in energy. There was theoretically peak oil in the form of peak oil supply, not demand. Both in 2008, 2009, we ran up well over $100 a barrel. Then when the energy cycle was kind of reforming again in 2014, the shale revolution pulled the rug again. The problem right now is that there's been structural underinvestment, both related to poor capital returns, this influx of what will probably prove to be temporary supply in terms of U.S. shales, and then also you overlay ESG and other government-oriented policies. Demand is growing this year. We're probably almost certainly barring a really horrific recession as the year unfolds, going to have peak um, hydrocarbon consumption we think you're probably going to have uh, continuing uh, demand growth for the better part of a decade, possibly decades. And most of the world is setting up for basically peak supply or peaking supply in the next couple of years. So that's going to result, I think, in volatile, higher energy prices. Again, when does that dynamic um, show itself? I don't know if it's a 23 event, a 24 event, but 
you know, just simple math leads you to the conclusion that there's a big imbalance there. Mm-hmm. And I can do that same calculation for things like copper, um, various fertilizers, various agricultural markets. And under just a status quo, forget geopolitical disruptions, forget black swan disruptions. There's a mismatch that very clearly materializes in the next couple of years. That in and of itself is by definition inflationary. Yeah. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. It's interesting you say volatile because I think some people, you know, sort of agree with the the scenario you just laid out, but are kind of looking and wondering why is oil at 75 and Brent at 81? You know, there had been these forecasts for it to be much higher and stay much higher, especially because economic growth has been holding in. And now you have China reopening. Are you surprised oil is at the levels that it's been trading at? And we have Max asking, uh, you know, what what are your thoughts? Is there more pain to come before it's time to get long? I think there's a lot of idiosyncratic reasons why we're a little bit lower than we otherwise would have thought. One of which is that Russian supply has been very resilient. Um, I think there's a number of variables that are supporting that. I do think that you will start seeing degradation of some of their wells, but right now it looks like they're able to get a lot of that oil to market via black market mechanisms. That coupled with, I think, a longer and more severe lockdown in China. Um, And then you have the SPR. So Mm -hmm. all of those variables combined to radically uh, distort what an otherwise market-driven balance would have been. And we're still around $80 a barrel. Yeah. So imagine if you removed those variables, how extreme we would be on the other side. But there's a lot of known unknowns uh, going forward. So I think, okay, a horrible recession, yes, demand will decline. But I think most people would be really surprised in a horrific recession of 0809, global consumption for oil liquids only declined about 1.4%. By 2010, we were at all time high consumption again. That was driven by non-OECD, non-OECD nations. So that's the growth engine. It's not us sitting here in the West with pretty mature, if not declining consumption. So I think that as you start seeing kind of China, and again, just like everybody's like, well, China's open, oil inventories aren't drawing, it's a big bust, inventories are high there. I think that's flawed logic. It's the same thing as interest rates. There's a lag. You don't flick a switch and open an economy that was closed for three years and start seeing all of these economic indicators start uh, flashing green overnight. Um, you also see the rig count declining in the United States. So supply is not where we think it's where people thought it was going to be. Ultimately, I also think that OPEC is a lot closer to exhausting spare capacity than they think. So 
there's a lot more upside skew in terms of risk to the upside. And in terms of the downside, there's obviously a market mechanism where investors have said, we're not funding you if you're not investing in economic terms. So it seems like there's a reasonable floor barring some sort of exogenous event and then a very extreme upside scenario for uh, oil in particular. Yeah, we have. It's interesting. We've got these lags that are really hard to time, both on the impact of the Fed rate cut, uh, sorry, rate hikes rather that, you know, that the, 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 what they're trying to do, their efforts to, to curtail demand and what you were just describing on the oil front. I would assume some will be worried that those will come at the same time. You'll start to see that, you know, the balloon ball you're holding out with oil start to rise at the same time. We're starting to see the economy crater. Um, and we've got Trillionex asking, do you think we could have stagflation in the second half of 23 into 24? Could we see higher oil prices hit just as the U.S. economy is uh, and 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 perhaps Europe really starting to feel the effects of central bank tightening? Is that a concern for you? Unfortunately, I think that the likelihood of that happening are increasing mm. because, again, we did have this economic resilience. The Fed appears to be looking at backward looking data, um, whether it's whatever their reasons are. I think they know better. Um, and, you know, you've even seen some of them state, let's get to a level that we think is adequately restrictive and wait and see rather than keep hiking. But you're definitely seeing early signs of deterioration. You know, look at, you know, construction, look at construct jobs in construction and housing. I mean, existing housing markets are still insanely strong, especially in the Northeast. But um, I think there's a fairly high likelihood the economy rolls over. And then, you know, we can't play that card to say, let's drain the SPR again. We can't play a lot of these cards relying on China to shut down again. We don't know what Russia production is going to look like. And the Saudis have made it pretty clear that they're not, you know, first of all, the Saudis can't just flick a switch and turn on 2 million more barrels. You're talking tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure to develop new adjacent fields. You're not just sucking more out of the existing field and infrastructure. So again, um, there's a very high likelihood, I think, that a lot of these inelastic demand markets are going to be kind of reaching a supply demand tipping point right as the economy is decelerating, which would kind of be a worst case scenario for pretty much all asset classes outside of, you know, these types of sectors or, you know, risk off type of trades. Yeah. Is the same tr hold true for agriculture? Yeah. Again, and I, when I think of agriculture, I think of it both fertilizers, which, you know, are a big part of the um, chemical and energy complex, as well as the end products themselves. And there were a lot of, you know, really draconian forecasts about what was going to happen between you know, droughts in the growing season, coupled with disruptions in the Black Sea region, which produces a tremendous amount of the world's grains itself. You know, unfortunately, a lot of that gets distributed into Egypt, down into North and Central Africa, into the Middle East, which are some of the lowest GDP per capita nations, which are the least equipped uh, to handle this type of scenario. I think that we've avoided kind of the worst case scenario, but if anything, I think what the last year or even two or three years have shown us is that it's a very fragile system and food is something that you really cannot tolerate having fragility in mm. when it comes to where supply stands. And so 
I think that you know a lot of the intermediary companies in the food and fertilizer supply chain are going to be absolutely critical. But again, higher volatility and probably higher trending prices within a volatile range. Yes, absolutely for ags. So it sounds terrible for people. Is it good for the companies? <laughs> um, <laughs> or yeah, do you get this, you know, do you start to have, especially when you're talking in the agriculture fertilizer base, do, does it, does the, and energy perhaps, do the passion of price controls come in? You know, will governments, if growth is slowing, people are suffering and these commodities are high, does it, do you start to get a political factor involved? Maybe. I mean, price controls, I mean, that would be basically the, you know, complete, devolution of capitalism and democracy and rule of law, which so I I hope that we never get to that type of a point. But to your point, yes, I mean, let's let's not go fully extreme where there's full shortages, just higher prices to the point where it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I like to look at is the United Nation FAO food index, where they track cereals and oils and all of the components of things that you really eat. And that's actually moderated some. So we are seeing some relief but by and large, all of these inputs are staples that are you know, necessary to daily life. And they are going to ultimately be manifested in A, consumers' ability to consume and corporates' ability to achieve profit. So again, putting aside that really draconian scenario where you have just you know, unpalatably high pricing in fertilizer, foods, energies, copper, um, the more, you know, I think likely scenario is just you're going to have weakened ability to consume, weakened ability to profit. Um, and, you know, that really plays into our view that we've gone through decades of where you've seen all of these being tailwinds to equity prices, equity valuations and corporate profits. They're stalling, if not reversing. So I think it's going to be a huge headwind to beta and that, you know, A, the passive movement, just throw a dart at stocks and let it go up, certainly 60-40 with kind of having that, those, those both go up together. So again, long story short, I think it's going to be negative for most conventional beta-oriented type of assets. But again, you know, there's definitely business models within those ecosystems mm -hmm. that I think will flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, stock pickers, market, more active management. The, talk to me a little bit about the demand side. So one of our viewers, Jim, pointing out fertilizer prices have halved in Europe. You know, at some point, if prices are too high, you just won't have farmers buy. I mean, if, if you get to the point where prices, I mean, this was OPEC's struggle always, right? You've got to get that happy medium where people will be able to pot, buy these commodities before demand just destroys the price. Yep. Have, is that still in effect? Yeah, I, I think fertilizer is a good example. But again, you can th there's limits to what you can do. And I think a great example would be Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka implemented a very ill-begotten policy where they mandated, uh, if it was not all organic, it was, it was basically a very aggressive organic farming policy. And they thought that it would be pro-jobs and it would encourage people to consume ag uh, their agricultural products. Next thing you know, a year or two later, their crop yields are down something like 40 or 50 percent, and they have to basically ban exports because of how um, disastrous that policy was. Mm. 
So, you know, there's a there's a couple other reasons for what's going on with fertilizer. There were definitely dry soil conditions in certain areas where you were unable to um, use your normal your normal fertilizer loads. But, you know, fertilizer has been one of the miracles that has resulted in increased crop yields. And so there's only so much that you can give in terms of foregoing the use of that. Same thing with energy. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, I'm not going to load up my camper or my Suburban and drive eight hours to the mountains or the beach. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of the marginal consumption. The core of consumption is, you know, a lot of this like long haul trucking, a lot of daily commuters, uh, heating oil, petrochemicals, things that are pretty much one of the last things that you're going to cut. So, you know, that's why I kind of think that there there is a tipping point to where you absolutely do see declines in demand, but it's not on a linear scale. There's kind of a, a laddered effect of where these things kind of uh, start kicking in. And, you know, I, I think that we're kind of a ways away for both, certainly back down here at much lower levels than we were six, nine, 12 months ago. Interesting. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you're trying to sort of inflation-proof your portfolio, is does that mean all energy, ag, metals, you know, when you're talking hard assets, is there anything outside the, the obvious commodity space that works for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what we're really trying to isolate here is companies that can grow their revenues on a nominal basis, while their costs, whether it's costs of goods sold or their SG&A, remain fairly static or, or grow far less than the nominal growth on the top line. So the ideal company for inflation is basically companies that can have profit margin expansion when most of the world is experiencing profit margin contraction. Mm. And so outside of the obvious candidates, your capital light um, hard assets that we've already spoken, I think some other really interesting business models are financial exchanges. So if you look at the exchange on financial exchanges, which are basically just the computer, which is the intermediary trading interest rates, currencies, commodities, index futures, their driver of revenue is volume. And volume tracks nominal GDP very closely over extended periods of time, while their cost structure, again, you're basically a computer. So your revenue can inflect higher while your costs stay largely flat. Uh, brokerages are another good example. So whether you're in real estate or insurance or shipping, uh, the brokerage model is such that the higher volume, the higher the price, the more revenue, but again, your cost structure is largely just paying your agents and you know your individuals in, ter in, in terms of doing that. So again, your revenue can inflect absent participation on the cost side. So those are a lot of the business models that we're looking for, where you have that scalability and margin expansion. Um, and we've actually identified business models throughout many sectors, industrials, automotives, healthcare, so we can cast a pretty wide net outside of that core allocation of hard assets. That's so interesting. Do they fall in the small to medium size? Are they larger cap? Do you, do, do you have a concentration? Do you find that they are in one of those buckets? Our, our funds, uh, I would say, skews mid cap. 
But there's exchanges that are, you know, 60, 70, 80 billion dollar companies worldwide. Uh, you know, there's, you know, really large 20, 30, 40 billion dollar brokerage, data, medical research companies. So it's a pretty big liquid universe. You know, it's not your mega trillion, multi hundred billion dollar companies, but it's a big universe of fairly high quality, uh, robust businesses. Mm. Is there any tech in there at all or is that? fall into the category that you feel is going to get most hurt? And this is the big discussion in terms of future profits and rising interest rates. Yeah, you know, I would argue that exchanges are technology platforms because, again, they're basically the financial supercomputers that are driving a lot of the risk mitigation in our systems. And again, they're that those are technology driven. So not traditional tech uh, in the sense that it's a lot of ad driven or e-commerce driven or communication driven, mm. but there's definitely a lot of businesses that benefit and leverage on technology kind of on a more holistic sense. When you're looking at the brokerages and exchanges, we had some questions about SVB financial um, having a rough day today. We've obviously seen the fallout continue from some of the stuff that's happened on the on the crypto side in the wake of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX's collapse. Um, is is some kind of systemic issue at all something that you're concerned about? So the banking sector. I mean, let me just back up. I started my career in December of 2005 at Horizon. You know, I've, I've been blessed to have been with my firm my basically my entire career. But I basically, you know, earned my stripes during the 08-09 financial crisis and doing a postmortem and realizing that all these money center banks were levered up 30, 40 plus to one. Yeah, it doesn't take much for that to cascade. Looking at these banks now, especially the big national brands that are levered up eight, nine, 10 to one, even the regionals. I mean, it would take something just wildly extreme to impair the banks. Mm. The shadow lending is where I think that there is a huge vulnerability. So this is the private credit, the direct lending. You see a lot of these business development companies, which is basically private equity credit lending to other private equity LBOs. So, so much of this really speculative uh, floating rate, you know, bank debt that was once originated and held by the banks is now originated and held by these these private uh, these private organizations and much like other private markets. I don't I think if these things were trading on the New York Stock Exchange today, they would have a very different mark than they are where these people are holding these companies now and or the holding these these uh, pieces of paper right now. So. In the fullness of time, ultimately, you know, if, if it's not performing, you're going to have to acknowledge that. I don't know if that's systemic and it will cascade, but there's just a, there's a multi-trillion dollar market out there of lending outside of the traditional financial system. And you don't have the checks and balances and you don't have the safety that, you know, theoretically would be in a regulated, you know, banking driven system. Yeah, great, great point. Um, what a fantastic, James, what a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. I, I love thinking about this inflation-proof portfolio beyond just the commodities, which are very, very important. But I, I love thinking about it in terms of balance sheets and profitability and capital as well. I think that's going to be really important. Yeah, I couldn't reiterate that enough. And I, I think that Obviously, there's going to be, I think the new era is going to be a lot higher volatility, a lot more uncertainty. But when you're able to really 
will lie back on, as you mentioned, the balance sheet, the business model, the cash flow profile, and then the valuation. That's what enables you to see the forest through the trees and say, look, I'm manifesting a view that is 12, 18, 24 months in the future. And I don't necessarily care if the market's going to have a temper tantrum because Powell, you know, gave an aggressive speech or, you know, Brainerd said something at a conference that made the market freak out about where rates are going over the next, you know, six to eight weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, James, I hope you'll come back again. We shared the ticker. So people are asking about that. We shared it in the chat. Um, and congrats again on getting uh, on that list last year. Let's hope you have the same performance again this year. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back. All right. Fantastic. Thanks to all of you for the great questions and for being with us. Ash will be back tomorrow with Warren Pies for an extended Friday daily briefing. I'm going to be with my daughter at the Nationals in Boston, the indoor track. So let's go dogs. But um, but those guys will be holding down the fort. If you want to join for the second half, remember, you got to scan the QR code uh, in the description, become part of our community so you can see the whole thing. And of course, the series continues. I'm not sure if we're going to share a little bit more on that uh, or not, but everybody have a great weekend. I'll see you back here Monday. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f*** your future in 20 or 30 years time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.